Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson, which helps you be better briefed. I'm Alistair Clark, politics reporter for The Courier, filling in for your usual host and my boss, Andy Phillip, who is enjoying recess in the sunny climes of East Lothian. This week I spoke to Scottish Labour leader Inas Sarwar, who'll be bringing together his party members this week in Glasgow. With Scottish Labour riding high in the polls, I started off by asking how he felt ahead of the conference. Well, look, it's, it's certainly been a slog over the last uh, almost three years now since I've been a uh, leader. But look, uh, you're right, um, there's a lot more confident mood uh, in the air. I think we've come through a really challenging period. You know, people can talk about a challenging period for the party, but it's been a really challenging period, I think, for the country. And I think as we are now in 2024, uh, I think that general election now feels closer. I think that opportunity for change now feels closer. And I hope we can use that mood for change, that demand for change, to actually deliver that change by electing a UK Labour government and Scotland playing its full part in leading the way to make that a reality. And your conference in Glasgow this weekend, what what is your sort of aim for that conference? Obviously, um, it's about speaking to party members as much as it is about, you know, speaking to the country as well. What is your aim for that? What do you want to come out of that having achieved? Look, I I think speaking to the country is, is way more important. And of course, it's an opportunity for us to pull our party together, to demonstrate that confidence, to demonstrate that passion and energy we have going into the next general election, to motivate them for that general election. But actually, it's more the motivation of the country and the persuasion we want to do of people across Scotland uh, that is that is even more important. And look, there's going to be two big focuses uh, at conference. Uh, of course, there's going to be talk of, of change and the demand for change and the need for change. That's pretty obvious after 14 years of this Conservative government that has completely lost its mind, to be frank, uh, where you have an internal contest now for who is the next leader of the Conservative Party uh, and now being driven by culture wars and to be honest, far-right conspiracy theories in many ways, and the need to get rid of this rotten Tory government couldn't be clearer. But you've also got, I think, a frame now where people can see that the SNP's lost its way, that its record is now coming uh, into show, uh, and that they too are going to go into an election campaign, not defending the record, not promoting the record, but actually trying to make it, again, a divisive election campaign. And and that place, we have got to make sure we're offering uh, hope and the offer of change to people across the country. And that's why for us, we'll be focusing on two big issues. One, the economy, how we put economic growth front and centre of all our politics, because through economic growth is how we create the fruits in order to reform our public services and to bring down the tax burden for working people. So we took setting out how we believe we can build a business case for Scotland and then that longer-term growth plan for Scotland. And we'll be setting out the principles behind that, the priorities of that growth plan, and also the levers we believe we can pull here in Scotland to make that growth here a reality. And then the second is around reforming our public services. And the most urgent need of reform in our public services is around health and social care, with over 800,000 of our fellow Scots stuck on an NHS waiting list. And that's why we'll be setting out what that longer term plan looks like uh, for our NHS, not just the additional money we'd get if we elect a UK Labour government because of scrapping the non-dom tax status, but also what that reform reform looks like in terms of workforce planning, in terms of digital innovation uh, and the use of uh, new technologies to uh, reform and, and deliver better healthcare outcomes. And third, how we break down the huge bureaucracy and management we have in our NHS, where we have a board of 50 
uh, of 50 boards, sorry, for a population of five and a half million people, how we reduce the number of managers and chief executives and instead invest in more nurses, more doctors and more consultants. And we'll be setting that out in more detail at conference as well. Just, just on the sort of reducing boards and things like that, one of the, the ideas that we've we've seen floated is uh, reducing NHS boards. Perhaps you know NHS T side, NHS five, particular relevance to the courier. Um, is that something that you are looking at, and how you deliver health services um, through you know traditional well, think, health boards? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look, if you look at NHS T side as an example, and you look at NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, which is obviously where where I call home. There are two health boards, actually, that are a perfect example of why we have got to change the broken bureaucratic system we have in our NHS. Uh, I think often about the infection scandal in the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, where a culture of secrecy and cover-up hallmarks now of this SNP government, but one that now is trickles down to the leadership of that health board, has meant the most tragic of circumstances for too many families here in the west of Scotland, and now the first ever corporate homicide investigation into a public sector uh, service uh, in terms of the investigation into the death of, of Millie Main. And then you've got in uh, Tayside, obviously, the uh, El Jamal inquiry that we're all waiting for. And again, uh, a good illustration of, well, a really sad illustration, but a good illustration of the, the, the need for reform is we have this heavy management, heavy bureaucracy, the silencing of clinicians, the silencing of frontline staff. And that's why we want to empower clinicians, empower frontline staff, reduce the bureaucracy, reduce the management, and therefore streamline our boards so that the, in terms of oversight, but also push power down to those clinicians to make those decisions on the front line. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my impression of you is that you see the general election that, that we'll see this year very much as a, a step on the journey towards 2026. You don't talk about it as if that this will be the end. This is very much the beginning. How important is that to you that your arguments aren't just about the general election, but actually how you get towards 2026, the Scottish elections, and, you know, potentially forming the next Scottish government? Yeah, look, when we get to the conference, we're going to be talking about, you know, why change is needed and what change means. And of course, we need change across the UK. We need to get rid of this Tory government because they've crashed our economy. Mortgage rates have gone through the roof, increasing by on average £2,000 for the average family in Scotland on a mortgage. Energy bills have gone more than double what they were two years ago. Food prices have risen by about 20 25% compared to what they were two years ago. They've broken our immigration system. They've broken our relationships in, in, in the world. And this is a deeply failing, and I would say corrupt and out of touch government that we have across the UK. But that's not the only change we need. If you're a young person trying to access our education system and you look at those PISA scores and the declining of our education system, I'm sorry, we can't blame the Tories. I would, I would love to blame the Tories for everything and I want to get them out of government. But there comes a point where we've got to look at ourselves in the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish government's got to look at itself and say, look, there's nobody else to blame and actually for once take responsibility. Our education system is completely devolved and it has been for uh, the last 25 years. When are the SNP going to take responsibility for the fact that we're failing too many children? That's why we need change here in Scotland. Our NHS is completely devolved. The SNP set its budget, the SNP set its priorities, the SNP oversee its delivery as the Scottish Government. 
838,000 of our fellow Scots are on an NHS waiting list. 50% of the hip and knee replacements that happen in our country happen in the private sector because of the two-tier system that they've created. That is some people paying £15,000 in order to get a hip replacement, in some cases having to mortgage their homes in order to do it. That's why we need change in Scotland, not just across the UK. I could list countless more examples of how they've broken every single institution over the last 17 years, where every Scottish institution is now weaker, not stronger, under an SNP government. And so you're right to say, uh, Ali, that we need change across the UK, and that opportunity for change across the UK comes this year in a general election. But my goodness, do we need change in 2026 as well. Uh, and that's why you're right. I view the election of a Labour government across the UK, and I view the election of Keir Starmer as our Prime Minister, as a stepping stone to the change we ultimately also need to see at 2026 and then beyond 2026 as well. I'm open about that. Um, I'm transparent about that. Keir Starmer knows that. Um, and that's why I will work day and night to help elect a UK Labour government so we can change those parts the UK is responsible for and help deliver change for other parts of the UK too. But then the hard work doesn't stop there. If anything, it ramps up because I am going all out to try and deliver change in 2026 as well so we can get back to a country where we don't try and pit community against community or Scott against Scott or divide them across binary lines. Because I tell you what, see, whether you voted yes or no, you're still stuck on an NHS waiting list. Whether you voted yes or no, your child's still not accessing the quality world-class education Scotland was once famous for. Whether you voted yes or no, too many of your children aren't getting access to that university place here in Scotland or to that job that's going to give them fulfilling employment and break the cycle of poverty for far too many families here in Scotland that are stuck in poverty. And that's why we are going to get back to a politics where we are one Scotland, we bring our country together and we fight together to deliver the world-class public services Scotland has, but also deliver the strong growing economy that Scotland has the potential to build through Brand Scotland, through the Green Revolution and through the technological advancement we're going to see coming in the next generation. And, and just to get into the, the sort of nitty-gritty of the election and the promises, um, obviously on the Stushy we we like to, to, to focus on the North the Northeast, Tayside, Fife. What is Labour's offering to, to those communities? What is, if, if you are, a, say, a, a, a former SNP voter in Dundee or Aberdeen who is, is thinking about voting for someone else, what, what would you say to them? How would you convince them if you were on the doorstep? First thing I'd say to them is, I genuinely do not care how you voted in the past. I don't care how you voted in either any general election in the past, any Scottish Parliament election in the past, or either of the referendums in the past. And actually, I don't care uh, largely how you view the future constitutional position of the country either. My position hasn't changed. I don't support independence. I don't support a referendum. But my goodness, do I recognise we need change right now. And I can completely understand why so many people across Scotland have thought the only form of change and the only escape route away from a Tory government was through the SNP. But I think now right across the country, whether that's in Scotland, England, Wales, or indeed Northern Ireland, that people want to get rid of this rotten Tory government. And so I say it directly to those people, um, I don't support independence, I don't support a referendum. We may ultimately disagree on the final destination for Scotland, but on this part of the journey, Let's do it together, get rid of this rotten Tory government, change our country and allow us to demonstrate we can make the UK work for every part of the country, including here in Scotland. 
But in terms of the specifics, because that's one part in terms of getting rid of the Tories, but actually what does it mean in terms of material change in people's lives? Because I think that's two uh, really, really important. One, we will deliver the New Deal for working people, the most transformative change in workers' rights in a generation. That means ending the use of exploitative zero-hour contracts. It means ending the scandal of fire and rehire. It means employment rights from day one. And it means making the minimum wage a real living wage so we can make work pay for millions of people across the country. It means getting fairness back in our tax system. And that means scrapping the non-DOM tax status and using the money raised from that to invest in our NHS. And that's a choice that the SNP have with that additional money, whether they choose to put that in the NHS. Our commitment would be that every penny of that consequential would go into the NHS in Scotland. Third, our Green Prosperity Plan. And I know there's been a lot said and written about the Green Prosperity Plan, and it'll have be of particular interest to your listeners in the Northeast. That Green Prosperity Plan is about partnership with the oil and gas industry and the renewables industry to make sure we actually deliver the transition that has been promised to them for so long and one that they ultimately believe in. And that's not turning off the tap or ending the oil and gas industry, far from it. Oil and gas will play a significant role for decades to come. It's about working with them to break down the barriers to make that transition a reality. And that means in the Northeast, onshore wind, offshore wind, hydrogen, carbon capture storage. I would argue that there's a role for micro-nuclear in that as well. And ultimately, that also means GB Energy, a publicly owned energy generation company that will be headquartered here in Scotland and, and armed with helping to break down barriers, have government skin in the game to make sure we're reforming our grid, reforming planning, investing in our port infrastructure, investing in our supply chains. So we're creating more jobs, not fewer jobs. So we're bringing down bills so there's not perpetually high bills for people across uh, the country. How we're delivering greater energy security so we're not reliant on foreign imports from despotic regimes like Russia, and also that we're demonstrating climate leadership because there is going to be a global leader in this. I want that global leader to be the northeast of Scotland. I want that global leader to be Scotland. And I believe uh, with the UK Labour government backed up by UK Treasury, we can help make sure that's a reality. Um, so that's a big positive programme that I'm looking forward to making uh, the case on for Yes, people in the northeast, but also wider right across Scotland as well. Barney Crockett, the, the former Labour leader of Aberdeen City Council, he, he quit the party last year over plans for oil and gas. He spoke to the PNJ this week and, and he said that, that his former party was trying to destroy the oil and gas industry. And he's particularly critical of the windfall tax. He mentioned the, the green investment, the £28 billion. A lot of people see that as a double blow, the windfall tax and, and, and this, this cut to the, the green investment because, you know, we're, we're talking about taxing these companies, we're talking about ending North Sea oil exploration, but then not really the Labour Party would promise would, they would fund. You know, they see that as a real hammer blow. My colleague Adele would, would say that a lot of people tell her, a lot of voters tell her that, you know, they don't want to vote for the SNP, they don't want to vote for the Tories, they probably would vote for Labour, but just can't because they, they don't see Labour as having this vision for, for jobs and vision for the North East where they live. How do you square that circle? How do you um, answer concerns around, you know, uh, carbon reduction, around ending dependence on oil and gas while still speaking to these communities? And, and it's a problem the SNP have as well. You know, how do you um, do both of those things? I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it's really important that we address that issue head on because I can completely understand why there will be anxiety, uh, particularly in the current climate, 
uh, with amongst the oil and gas sector in the northeast. I should first of all say that uh, look, I'm not going to re respond to uh, Mr. Crockett's uh, comments. That's uh, someone that made a career and a living out of being a, a Labour representative, a Labour leader of the council, a Labour Lord Provost, uh, and perhaps he can uh, reflect on that himself. But actually, the important point uh, about the the people and their concerns. Let's be really clear. We are not suggesting there will be a cut to investment in the green technologies of the future and the transition. The new money we are talking about is on, on top of the money that's currently going. Remember, we're not in government. The money that is currently going into the Northeast and into supporting the sector, what we're talking about is what we increase that by if Labour gets into government. So that is additional money, additional resource and additional support for the Northeast. The second thing is from for all the companies that I've spoken to um, uh, that are involved in the oil and gas sector and the renewable sector, interestingly, uh, none of them say we want government money uh, and none of them say that government money is the solution. What they are saying is give us a government that gives stability, that gives confidence, that has skin in the game, that isn't going to change their priority halfway through a term, or in the case of this current Tory government, change their priorities every second month. Um, give us that stability and work in genuine partnership with us to make this transition a reality. And that's what this is about. So the Green Prosperity Plan has many arms. One arm is GB Energy, a publicly owned energy generation company that's there to help make strategic investments to leverage in more money from the private sector. That's around giving confidence to those businesses that government's not going to walk away, but government's in there with you helping to break down barriers. We're, we're really robust about doing that. We've got the National Wealth Fund that is also a, a tool to try and invest in our port infrastructure. I was at the Dundee port just yesterday looking at the phenomenal transformation they've made and their plans for the future, how we support investing in our port infrastructure, how we invest in the supply chains. Again, from the visit at the Dundee port, phenomenal what they're doing there in terms of the um, pieces of the wind turbines that are coming in, how they're assembling them. The heartbreaking thing is almost every single component that is used to build those wind turbines is made somewhere else and imported into the country. Imagine we invest in those supply chains so we could build those components and those parts here in Scotland, because that's where the large scale jobs come from uh, in terms of that transition, rather than just the assembly and the maintenance uh, of these uh, wind farms and, and other renewable uh, technologies. So th they are all major investments that we want to make, and it is a genuine partnership. Uh, on the windfall tax, it's a similar windfall tax system uh, as they have in, in Norway. And no one can argue that Norway is struggling with inward investment or output from its energy infrastructure. Um, but this is about excess profits, profits that, were, that these companies weren't expecting to make, but have made because of the energy crisis uh, and appropriately uh, taxing those excess profits and then helping to put that money back into investing into the renewables industry of the future. And that's a dialogue and a conversation that we want to continue to have and work in partnership with them to deliver that transition. So I honestly believe that our Green Prosperity Plan is good news for Scotland, it's good news for the Northeast, but we have to build that genuine partnership. And I think that trust in order uh, to make sure we're working in partnership and after uh, the election, not just working in partnership as we develop our programme going into an election.
another arm of that of that plan is is things that could be you know broadly seen as responding to the climate crisis. Obviously, the northeast is is particularly vulnerable to that. We've we've seen that um, with the the flooding recently. Um, there was money to, uh, committed as part of it. So they, they were going to spend six billion pounds a year insulating new homes. That will now be uh, an average of about one point three billion a year. Um, so six billion over the course of the of the parliament. Instead of insulating 19 million homes a year, it will be 19 million over the parliament. Also, you know, there was, there was commitments to um, flood defences and things like that. Again, you know, things that are really relevant to the northeast. I mean, you must regret the way your colleagues sort of handled this this prosperity plan. It, it gave you a chance to sort of tell a story to the northeast, and and now you're instead asking or answering why why it's changed. It must be a social regret. You know, I, I, I generally still think I generally still think we have a good story to tell, and I'm really positive about the plan on the on the money for the. Uh, flood defences, that remains part of the plan that has not been uh, removed, that hasn't been stepped back on. Uh, in terms of the retrofitting of, of our homes, uh, again, this is additional money from what is already currently being spent from the government. So that is millions of homes that are uh, going to be supported through our, our programme. And look, I, I think the the issue is, I think we're, uh, we got caught up is focusing on the input rather than making the argument for the outcome. Um, and I think actually now that uh, we've got past that big argument and big debate about the input, we can now focus on the outcomes we want to deliver by this Green Prosperity Plan. I think the other thing to say, Ali, is I, I actually think it would be so much worse if we went into an election making a promise that we knew we couldn't keep. And I think actually it's it's good politics and the right thing to do in terms of building public trust. We talked about openness, transparency and trust uh, right at the start of this conversation. To be upfront with people and say, if we can't do something, if it's not deliverable, then we should tell you the truth about that. Um, when Rachel Reeves made the announcement about the £28 billion a year, the interest rate on uh, the uh, international borrowing markets was around 0.1%, 0.2%. We're now talking about over 4% interest rates on that international borrowing. Uh, you know, that is a huge leap in terms of how much it costs uh, to borrow. And our annual bill around borrowing is around £70 billion as a UK. And so we have to be honest about the fact that the Conservatives crashed the economy. That's, that's not a surprise. People know that. They crashed the economy. They've made all this much, much harder. They've, they've ensured that any economic inheritance we do get from them, if we do get the good fortune of being in government, is a really difficult one. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say we are going to be consistent with our fiscal rules and we're not going to risk the public finances because we've already seen what happens when you risk the public finances with uh, unfunded spending commitments. You end up with a Listrust-style mini-budget and mortgages going through the roof. And I am not willing to gamble on people's mortgages and people's incomes uh, if we have an incoming UK Labour government. So uh, I think, you know, we've had the debate and the discussion around the inputs. Let's make that robust argument about the outcomes uh, and why this Green Prosperity Plan is good news for Scotland and good news for the UK and one that we should be proudly putting as a centrepiece of our election campaign. Back to sort of local matters in Glenrothes, uh, one of your candidates to be a candidate out in the creek, you lost him as a candidate, your party, uh, asked him to stand down. Uh, a social told us that books he had written were viewed as too sexy and too satanic for Labour. 
Um, we, we've seen overnight um, developments in the Rochdale by-election where your candidate there, the, the party's now withdrawn support from him over comments he made about Israel and Gaza. Um, you know, how, how does the party not vet someone who, who is standing there, but, how, but you know, with make a councillor who has, you know, given over a decade to the party stand down? Um, how, how does that happen? So I think what, what the issue in Rochdale demonstrates is actually why you need robust and strong due diligence processes. And we often get asked questions when a candidate is not shortlisted or doesn't pass due diligence about isn't this undermining local democracy or local decision making. And I think what's happened in Rochdale is the perfect example of why robust due diligence and processes are really, really important because if you don't have robust due diligence and processes and something comes up, it can derail an election campaign. It can derail uh, 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 in a local constituency and have the fallout that we've seen over the last couple of days in, in Rochdale where the comments made by the candidate were simply and utterly unacceptable. The reason why that wasn't flagged in due diligence is because it was a secret recording that uh, only came to light after the candidate was selected and after the candidate was on the ballot paper. The Any suggestion that that information would have been available to the Labour Party and the Labour Party would have selected that candidate is simply not credible. Had that information been available to the Labour Party, that individual would not be fighting a selection contest and they would not be a Labour candidate, simple um, as that. And actually I really feel for the people of Rochdale now because um, they have a really difficult by-election now with a number of candidates that um, sadly um, I think uh, give the local people not the options that they deserve in that by-election. So it's, I feel sorry for, for Rochdale. I actually also feel uh, a level of pain and hurt for the family of Tony Lloyd uh, who was the previous MP who sadly passed away, who was a great champion of that community and a great symbol of public services. And um, I think it's heartbreaking for Rochdale, but also heartbreaking for his family um, that his successor may be something a, a lot less uh, unpalatable um, than what uh, Tony would have obviously wanted for the community that he was so proud to represent. In terms of the question you ask about Glenrothes, and I think it's important to separate what's happening in Glenrothes to what's happening in Rochdale, because you can't uh, compared the two for, for, for many reasons and for obvious reasons. Look, I uh, the leadership doesn't get involved in um, selection contests quite rightly, um, and the due diligence process is independent of the leadership quite rightly, uh, and uh, ultimately it is for the local people to decide who their selection candidates are and who they select. Uh, but as we've just described, uh, that has to go uh, through a due diligence process and those candidates that pass due diligence it will be presented to people locally um, and they can choose who they want their candidate to be. I should say in reference to Alton A. Craig uh, he's a man I know, I like uh, I think he's a fantastic local councillor, I think he's a phenomenal Labour representative and someone that I'm proud is a Labour councillor and one that I know still has a very bright future ahead of me. Just lastly, um, you you spoke about in an interview how you tried to channel Jose Barino and uh, your leadership. <laughs> um, I have to ask who who would you compare Hamza Yousaf to in terms of Premiership manager? Oh, I, actually, what, what I said in that interview, the, the 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 last bit got cut off. Actually, um, and the uh, was you know I the 
the confidence, the team management, the communication skills of Jose Mourinho. Uh, but I want the longevity and winning streak of Sir Alex. Um, so that that's that's the perfect combo uh, in terms of of leadership. In terms of who the current incumbent of leader of the SNP is, in terms of a football manager, is that what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, yeah. Like amongst the Premier managers of history, who would you compare keep compare him to? Oh my goodness! Maybe he's more a Bertie Vokes, eh? <laughs> Try to take on the Scotland job and didn't work out for him. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Anas Sarwar, and thanks for listening. Don't forget, we'll be at Scottish Labour's conference in Glasgow this weekend, and we'll bring you all the very latest news and analysis. And we'll be back in podcast form for more next week. In the meantime, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, Press and Journal, Sunday Post, and any of our other news brands so you can be better briefed.